Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us. I'm about to share a conversation that I recently had with Professor Colleen Murphy of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Colleen is the Roger and Stephanie Jocelyn Professor of Law, and she's also a professor of philosophy and political science at Illinois. She is a director at the Illinois Global Institute, where she uh, directs the Women and Gender in Global Perspectives program. We will link in the show notes to Colleen's website, where you can take a look at the books that she's written and edited, uh, award-winning books, and her academic work, as well as her more popular press kind of work, op-eds, interviews for podcasts, and things like that. Now, you might be saying to yourself, what does someone who is a professor of law and philosophy and political science have to do with my interests, uh, assuming your interests are having more productive civil discourse about challenges that your community and that our country face? And that's a reasonable question. You might be wondering that even more when I tell you about her area of research, which is transitional justice. And you might be saying, what is transitional justice? It would be completely reasonable if you've never heard that phrase before, uh, unless you were in a law school or a philosophy or political science class. In our conversation, you're going to hear more about what transitional justice is and why Colleen thinks it's something that we all ought to know about. But before we get to that, I am going to tell you why I think you should go ahead and spend your time listening to that discussion. If we think about the problems that our country faces now uh, and in our individual communities, the challenges that we're facing, probably those, those challenges and those problems have something to do with issues related to race, to inequality and poverty, to criminal justice. Uh, We talk a lot about those things on the podcast. We've talked to a lot of experts who have information to share with you about that. How do we move forward productively from recognition that we have problems in those areas? You may think, well, one of the ways we could move forward is to acknowledge that those things have happened and do better in the future. Uh, And we'll talk about a couple of instances during our conversation Uh, in the recent past where, you know, people have made exactly that argument. If we keep harping on what's happened in the past, then we're going to not be able to heal. We're not going to be able to have transformation. Let's just move forward. Colleen wants you to think carefully about that and to think about another way that we might move forward by following the pillars of transitional justice. And it's a process that has worked in other places places that we tend to think of as being, um, I suppose, much more challenged than we are in the United States. But if we are going to have healing, if we are going to have transformation in our communities uh, and address and talk about issues of race, of poverty, of criminal justice and punishment, we might do well to look at where others have been successful in addressing similar challenges and wrongdoing in the past. So I hope you will be open-minded 
listen to our conversation and see what Colleen has to say. And I hope that you find this conversation as interesting and enjoyable as I did. Colleen, thanks so much for being here. I know you're really busy because I've actually been reading through things that you've written and listening to some podcasts. And I would say you must be, you know, busy with all of that as well as your day job um, and everything else you're doing. So thanks for taking the time to be here with us today. Well, thanks so much for the invitation, Jennifer. I'm excited to talk with you. Absolutely. And we're really excited to talk to you too, because uh, I think one of the things that is most interesting about the work, uh, part of the work you're doing, you're doing a lot of different kinds of things, but the work we want to talk about today, particularly with respect to transitional justice, is something that I think will be uh, at some level new to people, but maybe they'll recognize pieces of it, right? right? And I think, you know, our audience are people who are very engaged in their communities, they're active, they want to make their communities better. And I think they're very well aware of what's happening in the world today in the news. And I would guess most of them would be willing to say, I look around and I see a lot of really bad things, right? I'm, I'm pessimistic maybe, or I'm discouraged about what I'm seeing, mm-hmm. whether it's what's going on in politics in our country, whether it's about racial injustice. And I think a number of people in our audience would say, I think those are all bad things. I, I want to be more optimistic. I want to move forward. Let's move forward. Let's acknowledge that the bad things have happened, but let's, let's do better, right? Let's do better in the future. And I know because looking at the news after what happened on January 6th in Washington, D.C., right, there were definitely, I looked this morning, there were, I went back and looked at quotes from politicians who said, but there's no point in revisiting this. Like, let's move on. Let's, let's make the, let's, let's not do anything that's going to undermine promoting healing, that kind of thing. Um, I think we hear that too about uh, particularly these days with discussions about teaching critical race theory or about talking about racism. Let's acknowledge that was, that is, that was, that is bad. But what we really need to do to get better is to move forward and focus on the future. I think that's a reasonable point of view that people can have, but why we, I think it's really important for us to talk today is you've thought a lot about this and you see, it's fair to say, a failing in that kind of approach of saying, let's just move forward and let's kind of look over our shoulder and say, that's over with, or put it behind us and move forward. Why is that not a great solution? So I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Jennifer, that the impetus to look forward is a very, it's not exclusively American, but it's definitely an American um, mode of dealing with ugly truths. Um, And, you know, partly I, I, I think it's on a more optimistic take. It's part of the optimism of America, right? We're forward-looking. We we want to do better in the future. Um, and I guess the lesson of transitional justice, which in its most uh, simple definition is the process of dealing with widespread wrongdoing, um, the lesson of that body of scholarship and practice is that you can't actually move forward. You can't actually get unity or healing um, that's worth having unless you 
confront um, the ugliness of the past and of the present. And um, part of why that's so is because from the perspective of transitional justice, you know, the past continues to inform the present um, in big and small ways and how interaction is structured and the expectations people have. Um, when you look at um, cultivating trust, for example, among marginalized communities, black and brown citizens with respect to law enforcement, the history of violence disproportionately affecting and continuing to affect black and brown communities shapes the attitude, the default stance that's taken. And so if you wanna build trust, you have to acknowledge and deal with the grounds that make distrust reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to unify and heal, you have to understand the ways in which relationships are damaged. And so it's sort of that is why the starting point of transitional justice, the mantra is um, looking back, reaching forward. It's if, you, if, you, if that's what you really want, you really wanna move forward together in a unified way, you won't be able to do that unless you deal with the past and the present mm -hmm. and, and the wrongdoing, um, the ugliness of right. those periods. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned unity too, because I know after the, um, when President Biden took office and it is inauguration, he had a call for unity. And I think a lot of people heard that and said, yeah, let's, let's, let's think about unity. But I, a lot of people I follow and people that I've talked to who are, who are activists in the community or are thinking about um, the challenges that we're facing said, no, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready to say, what does unity mean? Does that mean we all are gonna say, let's now you know, get together and go forward? I'm not okay with that because I feel like it kind of uh, papers over what has happened. And if we don't come to an agreement on that, um, the future is gonna look like the past because we won't, we won't really move forward. So transitional justice, you said already is, I mean, it's a concept that is, it's uh, something that has been developed in law schools, you teach in a law school. Um, it's also part of philosophy, but let's talk about what it looks like in practice. Um, so if we can, let's take an example that is domestic, still in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, one that you've mentioned, I know in places is uh, Japanese internment camps or internment camps during World War II efforts to address that, that happened much later, um, but that would be a part of thinking about transitional justice. What does transitional justice look like in, in addressing, I wanna say dealing with, cause that seems like it's like, well, we can make this all better, right? Or right, right. solution. I don't think this is from what I read. It's not, here's a problem, let's solve it. It is addressing uh, and it takes time and isn't easy. What does transitional justice look like in the case of addressing the past uh, in World War II when we, we intern American citizens? Great. So the, the um, transitional justice is about justice. And when you think about, especially in the American context, justice and wrongdoing, what immediately comes to mind is criminal trials and punishment, right? That's what justice looks like. And um, that is one part of transitional justice. So there's, there's five pillars of transitional justice. So five aspects of what justice looks like. So one is um, the, the for a particular form of accountability for perpetrators of wrongdoing, 
through criminal trials, either domestically or internationally with bodies like the International Criminal Court. But um, beyond that form of justice, the other pillars which are more relevant for the World War II example you were mentioning are about truth. So in the context of um, wrongdoing that implicates state actors, either law enforcement officials or government officials, um, who in many cases deny that wrongdoing happened, either by denying, for example, in Argentina during the, the, the dirty war there, denying that there were political prisoners. There were many thousands of political prisoners, but officially stating to the public, no, no, that's, that doesn't exist here. Or downplaying the wrongfulness of what happened. So re-describing um, what you found with a lot of internment camps, redescriptions of the conditions of living so that they seem less morally troubling. Um, we saw that a little bit with the, 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 the detention camps for children who were separated from their parents, um, redescriptions. Um, and so the truth pillar is about acknowledging in a descriptively accurate way and in ways that convey the moral significance of what's being acknowledged, um, the wrongfulness either of the camps that were established either by their very existence as well as the conditions that they contained so that's the second pillar. Often you have truth commissions, which we might talk about later that are used for that purpose. Um, the third pillar is reparations. So when you have, um, in the case of Japanese Americans who were interned, folks who through policy or through other forms of commissions of wrongdoing suffer material harm, the loss of businesses, the loss of homes, the loss of property, the loss of liberty, um, the reparations pillar is targeting victims and trying to repair um, the tangible forms of harm that they suffered in either material or symbolic ways. And in doing so, acknowledge um, that they were victims of wrongdoing and entitled to better treatment, had rights claims that, um, that precluded the form of treatment to which they were subject. Uh, the, the fourth pillar is a pillar of non-recurrence. So there you see institutional efforts to try and prevent similar wrongdoing from happening in the future. So when you look in the American context, shifting again to the example I mentioned earlier with uh, police violence and abuse, you know, institutional reform efforts targeting the structure of police or police practices. Um, other forms of institutional reform look at the judiciary or there's constitutional amendments or rewriting. And the, fi the fifth pillar, which is a new pillar um, in the last two years is one of memorialization where there's a commitment to remember, not just to acknowledging the truth in this particular moment or at a particular time when um, a truth is acknowledged and apology offered, but in a more enduring way, um, a commitment to remembering the wrongs of the past for its own sake out of, out of respect for victims and also for the sake of, of contributing to um, non-recurrence in a different way. So I'm, I'm really glad you went through the five pillars because I think that's really important to try and understand transitional justice. Um, I think it also complicates the, the prospect of, of acting on it. And I want to talk about that a little bit mm -hmm. later because it can seem a little overwhelming. That's right. Um, but I think what is, is maybe more likely to be easily accepted for lots of people is that there are all kinds of examples of the use of transitional justice abroad. You mentioned um, you know, a number of, of 
examples in, in internationally. But, uh, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking particularly about um, on the truth piece about Holocaust deniers, right? The idea that people say, oh, this didn't happen, it's not true, or it didn't happen the way you think it did, or there were reasons for this, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think for a lot of people, we can look and say, oh yeah, that makes sense to me externally, outside of the United States. It's absolutely important that you have something that does all of these things when you're talking about something that big. What are some other examples abroad of transitional justice and why it has been successful in really reforming and changing and healing. Right. So I think um, there's more than um, 40 examples one could talk about. So I'm going to pick and choose a few, but Super. just want to emphasize first that this is a practice that you find on every continent of the globe. So it's in, in Europe, on the African continent, in Asia, South America, Australia, you know, you, you, and um, so it's not something that's limited to one geographic area, but I'll, I'll give two examples. One, um, South Africa, uh, transitioning from uh, racialized apartheid to multiracial democracy in um, 1994. That example is important because of the way it shaped a lot of the practice of transitional justice. And when I teach a course on transitional justice, I actually use that as the complement to talking about Jim Crow segregation in the US, mm -hmm. looking at what transitional justice might like, look like here. So it's there's a lot of, of course, differences, but also important um, uh, parallels in the structure of injustice and wrongdoing. And so, you know, insights that we can draw on. So South Africa, as part of its commitment to transitioning from um, apartheid, you know, there was no victor mm -hmm. um, from the military point of view or violence point of view it was a negotiated settlement between um, the apartheid government and the nationalist party that was leading the apartheid government and armed um, anti-apartheid groups, um, the um, African National Congress, which came into power afterwards being one of the groups um, that were relevant there. And so, as part of its negotiation um, to transition, there was a commitment to amnesty that was included, that the transition would only happen if there was amnesty. So the removal of prospects for criminal or civil liability for wrongdoers. Um, but at the same time, South Africans knew that there had to be something done mm. with respect to the, the wrongdoing of the past in order to be able to move forward. So they established a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which looked at killing, abduction, torture, and severe treatment committed either by government actors or non-government actors among the anti-apartheid activists um, responsible for these wrongs. And perpetrators could come forward and were eligible for amnesty on an individualized basis. If they could fully testify as to the truth of what they were implicated in by way of killing or torture or abduction or severe treatment, and had to show that this was not out of you know, personal grudge. It was mm -hmm. for political reasons. It was politically motivated, either to defend the state or to contest and overthrow the apartheid government. And so that was, you know, that's that Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been the subject of, of, of reams of analysis, um, looking at its limitations as well as its successes. I think from the perspective of success, it was able to counter kind of some of the forms of denial that you were talking about with respect to the Holocaust, that, mm -hmm. oh, apartheid wasn't that bad. You mm -hmm. know, violence was um, 
an incidental part of it, not really core to the apartheid program. And so as a way of sort of foreclosing a kind of denial that would lead to, you know, we could have had a good form of apartheid, we just didn't. Um, right. The point was to show the violence was essential, that in order to maintain a regime of racialized segregation, you had to have the kinds of violence um, to suppress um, understandable opposition um, to apartheid that was uh, predictably and necessarily going to be present. So countering denial that was, apartheid was a, a good idea in theory, but badly implemented and showing that was a bad idea in theory and was necessarily going to be badly Im implemented. You were going to have this kind of denial. A lot of criticism you know, focused on the, the social and economic inequality it didn't talk about. Mm -hmm. That was a product of the apartheid state. And a lot of the protests that are ongoing right now in South Africa are, are showing the, the consequences of, of limited, the, the failure to adequately redress the economic legacy of apartheid. I want to talk about the point about truth and reconciliation, one about uh, truth commissions or truth and reconciliation commissions. One, because I think when people hear that, especially if it's intended to be directed at, at something that's going on close to home, that's a very scary idea for people because they think, you know, it might sound kind of Orwellian to them. It's fine if it's happening somewhere else, right? But, but what does that really mean? A truth commission doesn't mean we're going to get to truth with a capital T and everybody will have to accept it, that sort of thing. I take it that that's not an expectation here is that we're going to get to truth that is incontrovertible, that nobody is ever going to question, right? But that it draws attention to facts. Uh, and and I assume there is a recognition that even if you draw attention to those things, there are always going to be people who dispute them, right? That's absolutely right. So, you know, this, this debate, um, one of the things that's instructive, I think, about transitional justice, you know, so much of the experience and insights lie outside the United States, right? That's where the practice has really grown. And it's instructive for Americans to just sort of realize how many of the questions that we're struggling with are not distinctive to us, right. but are distinctive to many communities with legacies or ongoing practices of injustice and wrongdoing. And so we can look at, at um, lessons learned there. So on what you were just saying now, an enormous subject of debate in South Africa was about how to frame the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And is it this truth with a capital T? Is that compatible with democratic um, disagreement and democratic mm -hmm. debate, how do we think about the sort of status of the report that came out? And so, you know, one of the ways, uh, there's no single or simple answer to the question. One of, of, one way of thinking about what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report did was narrow the range of permissible lies, narrow the range of the kind of denial that it's possible to engage in with any credibility like this thought that, um, you know, apartheid was, violence wasn't really a core part of it. No, 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 it was, it, and, and by having a sort of factual record to say, you know, here are the documented victims, right? Where we have evidence, there was corroboration of victims' testimony, there were subpoenas that were issued. This was, you know, not simply assertions, 
on the part of victims of what happened, but there was corroboration that occurred. And similarly with perpetrators, you know, um, investigation into their testimony to try to document how truthful it was, how comprehensive it was, how verifiable it was. So, you know, it's not just simply words, though testimony is essential, um, an essential part of truth commissions. And, you know, you could look at whether or not the Truth Commission's report was incomplete in its analysis of the causes of these violations. It had, um, you know, hearings and testimony of the legal community, the media, churches and religious organizations, you know, various components of civil society to reflect on their role mm -hmm. in supporting and, and contesting apartheid. So it's not meant to foreclose discussion and debate. Yeah. Yeah. But it's rather supposed to set a foundation for debate and discussion that's productive. Yeah. It's based on, you know, an acknowledgement of the facts of the wrongdoing that took place. And so what do we do about that? And how right. do we think more deeply about the causes and more richly understand the consequences? So that's kind of the point and purpose it serves. It, it provides a framework and a foundation for further further work, further thinking, further discussion, which I think for a lot of people ought to be appealing given that we have so much debate over, you know, can we even have a framework or a foundation that we can start with where we're on the same, we're, we're, we're in agreement about what some of the facts are. Maybe not all of them, but at least some okay. of them so that we can actually shape the discussion. The second part of that I wanted to make sure we talked about was on this piece about reconciliation, because I do think, and I know you've pointed this out in your writing, for a lot of us thinking about reconciliation, that tends to have sort of theological overtones to it. And it has to do with, um, often has to do with forgiveness too. This kind of reconciliation that we're talking about in this context doesn't say, and we'll take the example um, of South Africa, it doesn't, it, it is not meant to be a reconciliation that says, if you have been harmed or if injustice has been done to you, you must forgive other people. Um, because even in, in some cases, having to forgive other people is diminishing your own experience, right? It's like saying it didn't really happen or it happened, but it wasn't that big of a deal, right? Reconciliation here means coming to terms with what has happened um, and, but not saying, okay, we're going to forgive and forget. Definitely not that. That's right. And, and that, that claim, so that's a claim that I defend that claim I'll just note is controversial. So some people do want to um, include forgiveness as part of their understanding of reconciliation. In the South African context, um, there was a lot of emphasis on restorative justice and you know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was leading the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and he was definitely advocating for forgiveness in ways that I found, and I'm not alone in this, but yeah. um, you know, troubling. So I think you know, um, the reasons why I wanna shy away from forgiveness in, in, in thinking about what reconciliation means are all, what you were just articulating. You know, if you think reconciliation is about repairing damaged political relationships, well, then let's focus on the damage. And the mm -hmm. damage is not anger and resentment among victims because that's a natural response to being wronged. The problem is the wrongdoing and the conditions that enable it. And so trying to, to understand those conditions, what, what allows, violence to become systematic and victims to become so numerous. You know, what is it that enables um, or precludes, I should say, 
victims from getting justice in the form of acknowledgement or having effective recourse when they're harmed. You know, that's where the focus of repairing relationships should be. Um, otherwise, we, in, in, in locating success in victims overcoming resentment, we really do often fail to take seriously or risk doing that failing to take seriously the wrongfulness of the treatment victims suffered mm -hmm. and not and, and placing the burden of relational repair on those who are harmed rather right. than thinking about just get those. over it basically. Yeah. yeah rather than thinking about you know how were folks who were bystanders to wrongdoing mm -hmm. or supported or benefited from structures of wrongdoing you know what is their responsibility our responsibility for thinking about making our relationships better right right because again acknowledging that and, and seeing that and discussing it is a part of the transformation and repair that can take place over time because it says we really do understand who, who whether it's an institution or an individual, was complicit in allowing this wrong to happen. So I know you were going to talk about another example, but if we can for the moment, I think I'd like to bring this now back to um, for, for our listeners, I think, mm -hmm. a very contemporary issue. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to talk about um, racism and injustice in the United States. You already mentioned um, thinking about, uh, you've, you've alluded to it in some of the things we've talked about. You talked about Jim Crow. So one thing, and I know you've acknowledged this too, is that I think for, you, you talked early on about us as Americans being optimistic. I do think there is this sense of we're different, you know, American exceptionalism to say like, well, there are these things in the past, they're not good, right? But overall, let's look at, you know, um, let's look at all the great things that the country has done, can do. Uh, I think given news we see day to day, that can be really hard. I mean, it's, it's August of 2021 and uh, we're watching what's happening in the withdrawal in Afghanistan. I don't, I don't know anyone, honestly, I don't know anyone who looks at that and says, that's not a problem. That's not bad. It doesn't, it, it, it does not say good things about the United States. And we know that it is damaging our reputation. So I don't want to underplay the fact that I think plenty of people in the United States are concerned about not just our image, but what we're doing, right. And how we're doing it. However, I, I also don't want to underplay what I think a lot of people would be as they listen to this saying, that's true, but it's also true that there are great things about our country. There are reasons people want to come to our country. There are things we offer. It may not be this perfect, clean image we might want to look back on and say, oh, you know, we're the city on the hill, all these other things, but there is something good about the United States. I think, I think for people, individually, but to think about ourselves as a nation, it's very hard to look at yourself and say, yeah, something really bad happened and to really immerse yourself in understanding that. And I think that's part of what's at play in responses to, you know, the 1619 project. To be fair, I know there are people who are saying there's inaccurate history in there and that kind of thing too, but to teaching critical race theory, which is a very complicated subject and we've talked about it in the past on, on the podcast. I think there are people who are gonna want to shy away from digging too deep into that because it's painful. Um, embarrassing is the wrong way to say it. It's much worse than embarrassing, it's shameful. Um, so, so that presents a challenge, I understand. 
But as we think about where we are in this country today and where we have been from the point of view of transitional justice, what do we need to be doing with respect to thinking about our history of racism, thinking about our history of um, injustice, and in doing those things that we're doing, the actions that we need to take um, following those five pillars, what are we hoping to accomplish? Because it's not everything's going to be fine and we can just erase that from our memory. That's right. No, that's a, that's a fabulous question. So I guess, you know, a couple of things to say in response. So, so one is to um, just keep at the forefront um, and emphasize that um, transitional justice is not a project that is designed to um, jettison American ideals. America as a land of opportunity, America as is aspiring to be a community where um, all are equal. So it's not about um, saying those ideas or and ideals and commitments are worthless or um, indefensible. That's not the project. The project is rather to say, let us try and be honest about the extent to which we have actually lived up to our ideals and accurately and adequately acknowledge our failures and the extent to which we haven't done what we say we're committed to doing. You know, we say we're the land where all are equal and yet we were founded on a commitment to slavery. Let's acknowledge the contradiction inherent in that founding and think about then, you know, the ramifications of that contradiction um, through to the present and, and, and what are we gonna do about that? So, so that we can bring our actual practice um, closer to what we say we're committed to doing. And I think, you know, going along with that kind of taking an honest look at ourselves requires um, not trying to frame everything that's bad about the United States as somehow exotic or mm -hmm. as imported from other places. That really irks folks outside the United States when bad things happen here and it's described as just like what happens in banana republics was the reference after the January 6th right, you know, right. interaction. No, 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 no. You know, let's think about what it is that does and has and has for a long time happened here. So, you know, when I taught a transitional justice course with a South African colleague, lynchings is a distinctive form and distinctively American form of um, atrocity and injustice. Um, racialized slavery took a distinctive American form with distinctive American denials and rationalizations. So, you know, the other part is just saying we can be wonderful um, in the ideals that we are committed to and yet fail to meet them. And we have failed to meet them. And let's be honest about that so that we can come closer to achieving and realizing what we say we're committed to. And, you know, in, in the course of normal individual living, this is not a radical thought. You know, right, you wanna right. be the best person and the best people are the most honest about their own limitations. And because that is what motivates you to try and do better, yeah, right? Yeah. To try and improve. If you think you're already at the best, then there's no re to, need reason to do anything better or differently and you don't improve and change. So yeah, I can't um, think of, a, I can't think of a relationship I have with someone 
that hasn't involved acknowledging mistakes and acknowledging when you do wrong. I, I, I don't think most people want to be close to people who cannot acknowledge that or own that when it's necessary. Right? That's right. In thinking about um, this specific topic in the United States, let's think about these five pillars. And when we talk about truth, um, and I think this is going to scare people to say, we, we, what would a truth and reconciliation commission look like with respect to slavery and racism in the United States? And I realize they are not the same things, but they are definitely connected. So there's already a proposal Representative Barbara Lee has on the table to establish a racial healing commission, again, at the national level to try and um, document the truth about our history and, and past. There's um, already right now ongoing work um, in the state of Maryland that is looking not um, at slavery specifically, but at lynching. So the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, is documenting and investigating racially motivated lynchings in that state. So you kind of the national effort that's, that's um, gaining momentum and support, a state level effort that's uh, work is ongoing. The, the commission has already established and um, will be issuing its report, I believe next year, if I'm not mistaken. There was a Greensboro, North Carolina Truth Commission that was established um, in the wake of um, some killings during a Ku Klux Klan march uh, there in, in the late 70s. So we have instances and examples where the scope is wider or more narrow. One particular instance, a history of a practice, a specific practice, a sort of broader history of racial injustice, um, you know, trying to document the truth mm -hmm. in these ways. So again, going back to the five pillars, and I think it's important too to mention, we probably already have talked about it, that it's not a pick and choose kind of thing. So if we have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, it's, you know, having that commission is one part. Even if we said having that both leads to some kind of common understanding from which we can have further discussion, might also serve to memorialize at some level what's happening. But there are three other things we need to think about in That's the right. course of this, right? What does that look like? So let's take um, any one of those examples. Um, you mentioned the one on lynching in Maryland, I think. Yeah. Um, so we talk first about the commission, what it's going to establish, um, what a school is in that. What beyond that, when we think about justice and reparations, um, and non-recurrence and uh, memorialization over and above the fact that this happens. What would that, what could that look like or what has that looked like? So I'll start with um, lynching. So the Equal Justice Initiative in 2017, if I'm gonna make sure my, my dates are accurate, 2017, if I remember correctly, um, opened the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is a memorial to victims of lynching nationwide. And it's an extraordinary um, uh, memorial. So there you see an effort in a visual and documentary way to sort of um, acknowledge in a more enduring manner uh, the victims of lynching in that part of um, our history. When it comes to reparations, um, you know, thinking about other policies, other forms that racial injustice has taken and the racial wealth gap. So the gap 
that continues to exist that has remained basically unchanged since the end of the Jim Crow era between the wealth owned by white families and black families in the United States. So one um, contributing factor to that were policies um, of redlining with respect to housing, which precluded um, black families from being able to purchase homes in more desirable and wealth accruing areas that had ripple effects for um, public investment, the kind of public facilities that were available in, in predominantly um, neighborhoods of color. So sit, the city of Evanston, Illinois um, was the first city to establish a reparations program specifically trying to redress that period of history. So um, qualifying households um, that suffered from redlining and discrimination between 1900 and 1960 receive $25,000 for a down payment or for home repairs. And it's funded by a city tax on recreational marijuana. So an effort there to an intangible way um, contribute, it doesn't fully repair, but contribute and acknowledge the consequences for wealth acquisition intergenerationally um, that policies like redlining had. Um, so, you know, another example of targeting the, the, um, the, 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 the reparations sort of pillar. And then for non-recurrence, you can look at um, the efforts at the military right now in the, the wake of um, the January 6th insurrection to try and better screen for members that have um, right-wing or white supremacist ideological commitments. Um, that's a form of what in other contexts has been called lustration, mm -hmm. where you're trying to um, ensure that public servants um, in different capacities don't have ties that would be inimical to democratic institutions. Um, so you've got that, you know, as well as broader efforts at a number of different levels, citywide and statewide and nationally to try and reform what policing looks like. Um, and mm -hmm. what the purpose of policing is. So those are, again, an, another long-winded answer, but some examples that touch on some of the other pillars are non-recurrence and um, reparations and memorialization. Fantastic. And we'll link in the show notes to your writing on this that does outline some of this so that people have, when they've finished listening, the opportunity to go back and kind of look at this in detail and some of these examples. Uh, so here's here's the thing. we I always ask people on the podcast, you know, the people in our audience are listening, not just because they want to know information, they want to think about how to act on these ideas. And I think when it comes to transitional justice, we just talked about the five pillars, the fact that they, they all need to be um, considered and happening, not pick and choose. It's also the case that transitional justice is not an individual thing. No one person is gonna be able to go implement all five of these pillars with respect, although individuals matter in ensuring that these things happen. But let's say somebody's listening to this and they say, this all makes sense to me, right? This makes a lot of sense to me. And I want to be able to be a part of this in some way. I can think of a couple of things based on what you've said. I mean, one thing is to share information about transitional justice so that people know about it. I think that's a huge piece of, of probably um, what can happen. Another, you've mentioned memorials, um, visiting memorials. That's, you know, the fact that they're established doesn't, doesn't do anything unless people actually go to visit and, and acknowledge them. What other kinds of things can people who care about, about 
trying to live up to the ideals that we were talking about before in this country do um, to ensure that we're making progress towards transitional justice? So I think, um, I, you know, the, what you were emphasizing now, um, I'll just reiterate. Uh, so one thing is just to, to commit to becoming informed about the efforts that are undertaken underway um, of, of various kinds. There's just, you know, transitional justice, one of the, the emphases of recent scholarship and practice is how essential gra grassroots activism is. So, um, you know, it, it helps if there's a national framework or a national emphasis on transitional justice, but that's by no means necessary, nor is it sufficient. Um, and so, you know, kind of really um, underscoring the importance of local activism and agency. So, you know, I was born in Evanston, Illinois, and growing up had no sense of, um, though I moved from, from Evanston to a different um, suburb of Chicago when I was young, you know, I wasn't aware of the extent of the history of redlining in that city until, honestly, until the, the program of reparations that was established. Of course, on one level I knew because I knew redlining was an issue mm -hmm. everywhere, but the form it took, the consequences it had. So another thing is to dig into the history of the city or region or state where one lives. Um, you know, the history of every state or, and city is not identical. There are patterns, there are common forms of wrongdoing, but really understanding the dynamics of, of ongoing dynamics, existing present dynamics that are problematic from the perspective of uh, racial justice, um, as well as the history of one's place, you know, and trying to get that history uh, better known, better acknowledged, um, better redressed. And so, you know, that, that, that's sort of a general um, to do to sort of take the model of, of Evanston, which was the first city in the nation to do this and not necessarily duplicate that model, but think about other forms of transitional justice that different cities or, you know, uh, um, states might take. Um, and um, working in collaboration with organizations that are on the ground, I guess this is the last point to say, you know, there's a lot of organizations on the ground that have been doing this work encountering um, and working for and advocating for racial justice for a long, long time, um, for, for trying to get better acknowledgement of um, the history of indigenous injustice. So, you know, at the University of Illinois, we start now programming with a land acknowledgement, acknowledging the indigenous peoples that lived on the lands that are now comprised by the University of Illinois. And that's a very recent thing. So looking at and educating oneself into the organizations that can be supported that have already been engaged in this work um, and amplifying the message of those groups and organizations, learning about the history of one's place and just recognizing again that um, grassroots is where it's at. You know, the local is what's essential for getting the kind of support for national efforts and the kind of enduring character that repairing our relationships really um, needs to take. Fantastic. That is excellent. And I, I feel like there's a couple of things in there that would be especially popular with members of our audience, not the least of which is there is value in looking at history of the place you live, right? Um, but also uh, not thinking you have to invent everything from scratch or reinvent the wheel, right? That there are people out there working 
um, and knowing about what they're doing can be valuable. So if people want to follow your work, I know you have a website, which we will link to. Is that the best place to find out what you're doing and, and your academic work, your interviews, that kind of thing? So a lot of whenever I do a, a podcast or I have a, a, a piece that's um, comes out that's that's more um, public facing and not just you know the, the narrow confines of academic writing um, I, I post it on my website I also post it quite regularly on Twitter and I post on Twitter um, sort of updates on transitional justice work that's happening nationally and internationally so that's at at Dr. Colleen Murphy is my Twitter handle and um, so that's another um, just for information about um, transitional justice efforts that are happening elsewhere. I try to be um, good about uh, being a, a, a venue of information sharing in that way. Very good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Jennifer. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and I really hope that you will check out the show notes where we will link to Dr. Murphy's website. If you follow that link, you'll be able to read more about the books that she's written, more about her research and teaching, as well as find links to some of the work she's written for popular outlets and other podcasts where she's appeared. There's a lot, as usual, to take from this conversation. And for me, in addition to having a better sense about what transitional justice is and how it has worked in the past and the five pillars of transitional justice, I think one of the most important things I will take away from this conversation is the point that Dr. Murphy made about if we hope to live up to the values and ideals that we espouse as Americans, it's really an obligation that we have to look at wrongdoing and to think about how we can do better. And I think sometimes we're reluctant to do that because being critical of our own past or decisions that have been made, whether by government or other institutions or individuals, might seem like we're not patriotic enough, might seem like we're not supportive of the United States. And in fact, maybe the best way to be all of the things that we think America stands for is to carefully consider mistakes that we have made in the past and think about how to address those wrongs, and how to become a stronger country, have stronger states and communities that can uphold those ideals and be inclusive. If you enjoyed the conversation, I hope you will join us again. And I also hope that you will take a moment to write a review of the podcast uh, or to rate the podcast wherever you download or have subscribed to the podcast. If you do that, more people will know about it and more people can join the conversation. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.